Hello and welcome to season four of the Bible and Me podcast. This is episode 10 of 12 in this series. So join us on this journey as we discover some incredible testimonies of people whose lives have been well and truly changed for the calling of God. This week, Nigel Watts sits down with Martin Parsons, Head of Research and Director of Studies at International HQ for Barnabas Fund. Martin talks about living out in Afghanistan when the Taliban were there and the unspoken growth of the church in the country. He also talks about the threat to Christians living in the Middle East and much, much more. The views expressed by the individual in this podcast may not reflect that of Precept Ministries UK. We hope this podcast inspires you in your daily walk and would love it if you could leave a review or rating so that we can encourage more people to the good news of the gospel. Now, without further ado, here's the podcast. Well, I'm really pleased to be welcoming Martin Parsons to the Bible and Me podcast today. Uh, Martin, on his website, describes himself as a former overseas aid worker. He's an author. He is also a writer about radical Islam and also the persecution of Christians. Uh, Martin has just moved to live in Wiltshire. Uh, he's married to Leslie, has two sons, loves teaching and writing. Uh, I understand you don't much like accounts or solving IT problems. but, no, you but like... I love people who can do that. <laughs> <laughs> so Bless Martin, them. welcome to the programme. Thank you. Um, tell me, why are you a follower of Jesus? How did that happen for you? I grew up in a, a Christian family, but you know, you come to a point where it has to become personal. And for me, it was actually quite young. Um, I was about eight, nine years old, and we got taken, because I was a minister's kid, um, I was allowed to go with the youth group to this kind of meeting in another town. And there was this lad who was a little bit older than me sharing his testimony, saying, this is what happened to me, this is how I found Jesus, and I kind of thought, I want that. but. As with many young people, um, I don't think I had anyone really discipling me. It was just assume you go to church, you go to Sunday school, you'll be fine. And there was lots and lots of ups and downs. One of those when I was about 13, I got baptised. And then I was into a down again after about six months or so. And I went through, um, when I was about 16, 17, a really kind of anti-charismatic stage. And that was just be, that sort of renewal was beginning to happen in the church. And people are trying to force it down my throat and I went 180 degrees the other way. And then just as I went to university, just through God working through my prayer life, I would just kind of say when I ask for forgiveness each day, and Lord, take full control of my life and fill me with your Holy Spirit. And it was like change started to happen then. And I can remember being at university first term and I was walking back to my digs one night and there's this guy, a bit worse for wear, coming out of the pub. And I thought, I ought to be able to share the gospel with that guy. And over the next kind of term, I must have shared the gospel with dozens, not hundreds of people. And it was like, God, just changed me. But as with, you know, when you're young and you're enthusiastic, there's lots of zeal, there's not always a lot of wisdom. And as you grow up and you mature, you need to actually, your roots go deeper and you need to get into the Word. And one of the things I did in those days was read right through the whole Bible. Um, try and study the Bible, get books on the Bible. Um, but actually, just reading through the whole Bible, I followed a system that Robert Murray McChain set up, where you read 
a bit from before the exile, a bit from after the exile, another chapter from the Gospels and another chapter from the rest of the New Testament, four chapters a day. And I forget how long it takes you to get through the Bible, it's about a year or so. But you get to let it sink into you, that's so important. So the Bible became very dear to you early on in your in your walk uh, following Jesus. Yeah, I mean, this is the foundations. It's like, you know, if the roots aren't going down deep and they can't go down deep unless they're watered, you're not going to go anywhere as a Christian. Yeah, wonderful. Well, I would say amen to that, definitely. Now, you studied geography at university, uh, having grown up in East Anglia, and uh, you then became a geography teacher. And then in the early 1990s, you went to Pakistan. So why did you go to Pakistan? And what were you doing there? And what was it like living out in Pakistan? Well, it's really interesting because yeah, the motivation for going there was um, God had called me to work overseas when I was early in my university years. Um, I felt a very clear sense of call there. It wasn't, I had no idea how it was going to work out in practice. Um, I tried to go there straight after university and just a closed door, nothing happened. Um, but it, that just seemed to be the right time to be going. God opened all sorts of doors for me to get out there. But everyone actually has a very um, particular view of other countries that's not necessarily realistic. And even though I'd been a geography teacher, you know, what I actually thought when you get to Pakistan, a country like that, it's completely different. Now, I arrived literally about four or five days after the first Gulf War had kicked off. Um, we should have been flying out on Kuwaiti Airlines. That flight, funnily enough, got cancelled because Kuwaiti Airlines weren't flying anyway when they'd just been invaded. Um, and we flew into Karachi. It was at night and there was writing on the streets. I sat there listening to this gunfire and apparently the, the government had just been overthrown and the president had dismissed the government. And I thought, okay, so... Nothing to do with your arrival, of course. No, no, no. And you kind of think, this is what it's going to be like for the next year or so then. And um, actually, the monsoon arrived just after that, and there's nothing like a good downpour to get rid of rioting. Um, but there's a lot of adjustments, because you grow up in one culture, and that's all you know. You go to another culture, and what you have to then work out is what's good and what's bad, not just in that culture, but in my own culture. And how do you decide if something is good or bad? So, for example, Pakistani culture, you know, great emphasis on hospitality. UK culture, particularly English culture, much more of an emphasis on privacy. How do you decide between those two? And actually, at the end of the day, the only thing that you can use to decide is something that is an ultimate source of authority. And, you know, that's scripture. So what was it like living out there? And what, what work were you doing there? Um, I was doing two jobs while I was out there. I was sent out by an organisation called InterServe, who seconded me to a, a local Christian organisation. Um, I taught one lesson a day in a Urdu medium um, high school for poor boys from the Christian community who the Christian community out there is very discriminated against, it's very marginalised, and this was a way of getting, helping them get an education. And I also ran an English language institute, um, which 
80% of our students were Muslims. Um, and quite often, you know, we would be the first Christians they'd actually really met who weren't absolute bottom of the pile, what they would call sweeper class, and they would have nothing to do with them. But to actually meet an educated, middle-class Christian like them, quite often that would be the first time that it happened. And obviously we would have some quite interesting discussions coming from that. Mm, definitely. Now, I know that later on you lived in Afghanistan, uh, and that was at a time... Okay, Nigel, can I just stop you? Yes. Right, Afghanistan. You need to kind of almost gob in the middle. Can you try it? Afghanistan. That's, that's almost good, almost good. Okay. Um, you lived in that country there, uh, and you lived there whilst the Taliban were ruling. I mean, that sounds pretty scary to me. Uh, what was it like being a Christian in, in that country, um, in that particular context when the Taliban were ruling? What were some of your experiences out there? Well, first of all, I lived there before the Taliban when the Mujahideen were in charge. The Mujahideen had, were the, the armed jihadist groups that were fighting the Russians. Um, and the good people got out of the Mujahideen when the Russians had left. Um, and so you get a kind of semi-criminal plus fundamentalist element in the Mujahideen groups. And I was with the first group of Westerners to move into Jalalabad in Afghanistan. And... You know, lots of development agencies, Christian and non-Christian, had worked amongst Afghan refugees based from Peshawar in the board, over the border in Pakistan. And we moved into Jalalabad. And we were pretty well the first group of Westerners to ever live there. So we were a bit of a curiosity. And people would follow us in the street. And I was walking to... Um, following some other people, um, they were ladies, we didn't feel it was appropriate for men and women to walk um, alongside each other in the street for um, reasons it would be misunderstood. And I was following these ladies who knew where we were going to meet for worship um, that particular Friday, and I got lost. And I had just crossed the border, I could speak Urdu in Pakistan, I couldn't speak the language in Afghanistan, and all these crowd of men surrounded me in Jalalabad. And um, they were asking me all sorts of questions. And there's one chap who spoke English and he said, you know, would you like to come around for a cup of tea to my house? And I said, okay, I'll, I'll come later, but I, I need to get going. And eventually I found where I was supposed to be going to and everyone else had been praying for me for the previous hour. I've got lost in this big city. <laughs> and, um, and I went round to that, that chap's house in the afternoon. And... It was like this was a family that God had been working in their lives for many, many years. About a week or so later, that young man came around to see me. And he said, I had a dream that you wanted to come and see me, but you couldn't. And I said, well, yeah, I just had the, the normal sickness. You get it when you're overseas, but prayer and fasting, God healed me. And he said, do you know, in this town, the Mujahideen the and the Mullahs, the, the Islamic teachers, the other day, they went round with sticks, beating up people, forcing them to go into the mosque to pray. And he said to me with tears in his eyes, you know, one day hundreds of people are going to leave this religion. And that was what it was like before the Taliban came in. And it was like Afghan Muslims were having radical Islam forced down their throats. And you couldn't say anything because the consequences of that didn't bear thinking about. Then the Taliban came in and they quadrupled it. 
Um, and there was a certain element that would always say, um, you know, the more conservative Islam we have, the more God will bless us. And then there'd be other people who would start to say, God can't be like this. And so there's that kind of questioning that would go on with some people. But they would never say those things to another Afghan. It wasn't safe to say it. And while I was living there, there was a, a man in a, a village just outside Jalalabad. And you get lots of feuds in Afghanistan. And somebody he'd had an argument with tipped off the Taliban. They thought he was a Christian, an Afghan Christian. Taliban searched his house and they found a Bible. They took him outside and they said to him, you return to Islam now or we kill you. Um, and he refused to deny his faith and they hanged him there. And there were other Afghan Christians there and you know, they would have to be secret believers. Occasionally they would come and talk to us. We were safe to talk to. Um, we weren't someone who's going to rat on them. Um, sometimes they, if they were caught, they could be forced as, to act as human mind clearers, to walk through the minefields. Um, and yet, you know, the church was actually growing mm. in Afghanistan. And it was predominantly growing by Afghan telling Afghan. Yeah. Goodness me. Goodness me. So very, very tough, very tough context. Very tough context. It, it was particularly tough for Afghan Christians. Yeah. You know, you were in a bit of a protected status as a Westerner. Not entirely. There were um, the aid workers from Shelter Now International who were held hostage and put on trial for their lives by the Taliban um, straight after 9-11, um, friends of ours. Um, and, yeah, they were miraculously delivered. Um, but not everyone is. No, no, no. What did God call you to, Martin, when you uh, came back to the UK? Well, we had spent all our married lives. Um, I had spent 10 years or so setting up a, a development project in Afghanistan amongst an area where no one else was working, uh, recruiting a team there, um, trying to unscramble the unwritten tribal language, to use an alphabet, we invested everything financially, emotionally in it. And we just got our team out there and God very clearly called us to hand over the leadership, come back to the UK. That was a huge emotional wrench. We also had to say to people, you know, I will not give you any advice as the new team leader. You need to make your own decisions unless you ask for advice. And for me, that was quite important. But we came back to the UK, two small children, five-year-old, three-year-old, um, no job. Um, and we just met with our church leaders, we prayed with them, and then we took a fortnight's holiday. And we went on holiday to Cornwall, and I was just about to you know, go into the bookshop, buy a book, you know, novel or something to read on holiday. And we went to the Christian bookshop in Bude first. And God pointed out, you know, just kind of like highlighted this biography of William Wilberforce. Christian MP who devoted his life to abolishing the slave trade and numerous other causes as well. Um, and it's like, that is your holiday reading. And it was a big one. It was a big biography by John Pollock, a few hundred pages. And as I was reading this, and I'd just completed my PhD on Christian and Islamic theology, um, 
it's like God was very clearly saying to me, I want you to get involved in politics and to be involved in, Christ in uh, politics as a Christian, to be an, eventually to be an MP, and specifically to speak about the Islamic agenda for Britain and other countries, <coughs> difference between Islam and ordinary Muslims. Um, I told my wife and she said to me, you know, I thought the worst thing you were going to say to me was I was going to be pastor's wife, and that is worse. <laughs> Um, we went back to our church, uh, we were then living in Leicestershire, and I opened the news sheet and whole section of it saying Christians in politics encourage church members to stand for election, for um, local council, to parliament and so forth. And we kind of prayed about that, we prayed with people about it. Um, Cut a long story short, within three months I was on the Conservative Party's parliamentary candidates list. It's not all plain sailing off then. I never got selected um, as a parliamentary candidate. I got involved other ways. I started to write for something called Conservative Home, which is the main independent website in the Conservative Party. It's very difficult to be a Christian in those circumstances. You have to think through what are the Christi Christian values now, how can I express them in a way that non-Christians will actually buy into that? Because in a democracy, you've got to be able to make that argument. Um, became a local councillor, um, did various other sorts of writing on it. I've got a major book coming out on that shortly. Um, but that's what God called us to do. And that's something that's ongoing. We yeah. don't know how it works out in the future. Mm. Mm, so into politics. Well, we need good Christian men and women in politics. There's no doubt about that. Now, tell us, uh, Martin, about your interest in um, radical Islam and also the persecution of Christians. Okay. Um, as soon as you go to the Islamic world today, you will meet the issue of Christian persecution. And if we, when I grew up, yeah, we would hear about famous Christians who were persecuted, Richard Wurmbrand, people like that. And at that stage, communism was the main driver of persecution of Christians, and there were more than 40 communist countries. What happened then was almost like a collapse of a pack of cards. And, you know, whatever happened on earth, something was happening in the heavenly realms at the time. 1983-84, you've got real collapse of communism, Berlin Wall falling down and so forth. But just before then, we had the Iranian Islamic Revolution. And that became like the template for radical Islam around the world. We've got a radical Islamist government established in control of a whole country. And you get this spreading all around the world. In this country as well, we had at the same time the Rushdie Affair, which radicalised a whole generation of young Muslims, or a significant proportion of them, um, because they saw that the kind of liberal establishment, that they thought had always backed them with multiculturalism and, and so on, um, they backed Rushdie instead, who'd written this novel that basically insulted Islam. Um, and whole generations of young people radicalised. And what we're starting to see now is radical Islam is the biggest driver of Christian persecution in the world. Um, and it's getting worse and worse. And what we, start, what we see each year is 
two things happening. One is that more and more countries are adopting Sharia enforcement. Um, and those that are have already got Sharia enforcement, they're adopting deeper and deeper levels of Sharia enforcement. So just at the moment, Brunei. Brunei is a member of the British Commonwealth. If you went back five years, no Sharia enforcement. Nine, ten percent of the population of that country are Christians. And yet they are in a process of going from zero to a hundred percent Sharia enforcement in the space of, originally it's going to be three years, it's probably five years now. And that means full hooded punishment, so chopping off hands for thieves, but it also means execution for apostasy if you are born a Muslim and you convert to Christianity. And that's the sort of thing that's happening. Do you know, my, my brother lives in Brunei, lives in Brunei, and we went out to his wedding about three years ago and he right. was talking about it at that point. So it's interesting that you mentioned that particular country. And that's a country that many Christians, you know, are not really aware of because they might have visited it, um, yeah, on holiday in the past. Yeah. I was speaking at a, a church in a extremely affluent area of London, and I happened to mention this when I was speaking at the church, and a couple of people came up to me afterwards, and they said, "Yeah, we went on Brunei to holiday, and it was good then, but." The Sultan of Brunei, he's got a couple of houses just around the corner from here. We could go and see him on this. You know, and actually, even those people who got those connections, they weren't aware of it. And what we're seeing, it's a bit like the frog in the saucepan of water. You know, the frog, just the water gets heated up and the frog just thinks, OK, it's getting a bit warm, I can stay, it's not a problem, until it's too late. And we also see the violence goes hand in hand with... Um, the government enforcement of Sharia. So you look at somewhere like Nigeria. In 1999, Nigeria held elections after 16 years or so of military rule. And there was a man stood for election in Zamfara State in the northeast on the vague promise of, we'll institute some religious reforms to get Allah's blessing. As soon as he was elected, he brought in full 100% Sharia enforcement. And literally about 11, 12 other states in the north copied him. Within a few years, we had Boko Haram um, starting up more or less as a kind of vigilante police force. They said, we're not going for Christians, first of all. We're not interested in Christians. Uh, but it's a sort of, you know, we want to make sure that Fulcherir is really enforced. Um, within a few years, though, they were attacking churches. Um, Two years ago, the Global Terrorism Index declared that Nigeria was the worst country in the world in terms of the number of deaths from terrorism, and it, it's Boko Haram. More people were being killed by Boko Haram than by Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. Didn't get the publicity, but about half of them are going to be Christians. The other half will be members of security forces. That's now spread to religious cleansing in parts of northern Cameroon. Christians having to flee there, it's fled to Chad. It's spreading across North Africa. We've got similar things happening in East Africa, where Al-Shabaab have taken over the southern part of Somalia. They're launching so many attacks on northern Kenya, Christians cannot live in parts of northern Kenya. It's religious cleansing. Um, we've seen Boko Haram in 2014 declared we are reinstituting those parts of Sharia which allow slavery of non-Muslims. So that's why they kidnapped the 
Chibok school girls. Six months later, Islamic State copy them and do exactly the same. So we've got a, a slave price list. We got in 2015 from Islamic State and it just lists the prices for Christian and Yazidi women. Goodness me. You, you are currently the head of research um, for the Barnabas Fund. Um, tell us about that work. You do okay. Um, that's very much looking into those issues that we've just talked about. So we, Barnabas Fund was set up 25 years ago specifically to focus on uh, persecuted Christians in the Islamic world. And obviously that's at that change point where it was communism that was the main driver and it's now increasingly radical Islam. Um, so what we're doing, we're mapping what's happening. Um, that informs um, both our project work where we're, we're funding hundreds and hundreds of small projects and we don't send people overseas to work full time. We just channel money through local Christian partners, local churches on the ground. Um, but also our advocacy work with the government. So we're meeting with government ministers and we're saying this is what is happening in this country, this country, and this country. Um, some of it is kind of holding the government to account. So for example, two days ago, no, yesterday, I did a, an interview with the Sunday Times. Now that was on the back of some freedom of information requests we put into the Home Office about Syrian refugees coming to the UK. We know there is a huge problem that the UNHCR, the UN High Commission for Refugees, which is responsible for recommending refugees for resettlement to countries like the UK and New Zealand and so forth, there is massive discrimination taking place at the local level, particularly by local Muslim officials. And we worked incredibly hard to get information on a freedom from a Freedom of Information request to the Home Office, how many of those being recommended to the UK are Christians and how many who are actually accepted are Christians. Now, I put a Freedom of Information request in early last year. They're supposed to reply within um, a month. They weren't replying. We made a complaint. They said, yes, it should be released. And it went on and on. Eventually, we went to the Information Commissioner's office Information Commissioner's Office issued a legal notice stating the Home Office had 35 calendar days to come up with this or they would be taken to the High Court for contempt of court proceedings. We got to the 35th day and I ended up contacting the office of Brandon Lewis, who was then the Immigration Minister, and said, look, we know this is not ministers, it's civil servants who make these decisions, but can you issue a personal order to get this information released, otherwise the Home Office is going to end up in contempt of court proceedings. And we got it. Um, and then we put in a request for another lot of information for more updated. Oh, we get stalled again and we have to keep arguing with them. What we found though, in 2017, out of 7,066 Syrian refugees recommended for resettlement in the UK, less than 30 were Christians. Now we've just got the latest set of figures for the first three months of this year. There were just over 1,300 recommended to the UK. Only four of them were Christians. Now, Syri Christians in Syria made up up to about 10% of the population pre-war, but they've been specifically targeted with enslavement, religious cleansing, and so on. And actually, 
of those four Christians out of the, the 1300, the Home Office turned down all four so that they accepted 1,111 Syrian refugees, all Muslims, no Christians at all. Now, that tells you there's a problem in the Home Office, in that whole culture of the, you know, how long have we heard about problems in the Home Office for? There's a problem of the culture there, as well as a problem in the UN. So that's the sort of stuff that we are digging up because we are the voice of the persecuted church. Um, and we're also doing various training programs. We're running a postgraduate program, the Oxford Centre for Religion and Public Life, training the next generation of church and government leaders um, to actually tackle some of those problems. So, you know, someone in, say, someone like South Sudan, it's a new country. How do you, as a Christian leader, somewhere like South Sudan, work out what is a godly way to run a government? You know, in this country, in the UK, we've got this huge heritage, which is being forgotten, of how a predominantly Judeo-Christian ethic has been worked out over the centuries through our common law, through our institutions, and so forth, um, to bring about justice. And most of the social reforms in this country have come about through Christians seeking to apply biblical principles, whether it's you know, Wilberforce and slavery, Shaftesbury, Elizabeth Fry, and so forth. But if you're in a new country like South Sudan, where do you start from? You can't just copy the West because you're in a different culture. What are those principles? What are those biblical principles that you can go back to and say, actually, you know, this is a really important principle. But at the same time, how do you avoid simply taking the Old Testament and reproducing it? Because in terms of the hermeneutics, Old Testament Israel was both the people of God and a political nation. At the New Testament, they split. The church becomes the covenant people of God, and you've got lots of individual nations in which we need to be salt and light and let those principles work out. So, yeah, this is, I think it's strategic work, but it's about thinking how do we apply these principles that have been so important in our culture, Christian biblical principles, but how do you apply them in a different culture? Yeah. Wow. Tremendous work. Tremendous work. Um, I would like to talk to you now about your relationship with the Word of God and what's your view of the Word of God? Why is it important to you? You know, there may be somebody listening to this podcast thinking, yes, well, the Bible, I've heard of, you know, uh, but what's, what's your view about the Word of God? <laughs> Sometimes I think it's easier to, to answer those sort of questions with stories. We've just moved church and moving to a new church, it kind of raises the question of, okay, what is your ministry? You know, is it kids' work? Is it, you know, whatever? And as I've kind of pondered that one and prayed about it, you know, what's my heart in this? Because you know, I'm doing stuff outside the church. I'm involved in politics. I work for Barnabas Fund. But actually in the local congregation, my heart really is to help people to understand the Bible for themselves. Because I see so many situations where people just listen to what somebody says at the front of the church. And often that's only 15 minutes of fairly shallow stuff anyway. Um, and they can just be swayed completely off course because they've not been taught to check it out in the Bible themselves. They've not been taught to go to a book in the New Testament and say, 
understand the context of that book, and then, okay, now I can understand what it means. You know, um, it's a little bit like... You, start, you, know. you could be an advocate for preset ministries here. You realise uh, that, Martin? <laughs> uh, there's a silly little story that's been going around for years about you know, the guy who wants guidance from the Bible. So he opens the Bible at random, puts his finger down, and it says Judas hanged himself. Tries again. Go do you likewise. <laughs> now, actually, you don't get that if you look at the context of the Bible. What's it addressing? If you look at one of Paul's letters, you know, let's take 1 Thessalonians. Yeah, Paul has already preached the gospel to the Thessalonians, and you can see echoes of Mark's gospel in 1 Thessalonians. It would have been an oral form of Mark's gospel rather than the written version, but there are echoes there. Paul has preached that to him. And when he's writing to, one, to the first letter to the Thessalonians, he's writing to correct misunderstandings and to give them a little bit further teaching. This is not a sum total of Paul's teaching. Paul's teaching is the gospel plus this. You know, and when you understand that, yeah, some people will say, well, Paul never talks about this, this, or this. Well, Paul understands the gospel. He presupposes everything that Jesus taught. When you understand that, it will help you much better understand books yeah. like 1 Thessalonians. Yeah, wonderful. Um, I didn't know you were going to say that when I asked you that question, but it does give me an opportunity to say to those listening here um, that as a ministry, Preset Ministries helps you to engage practically with studying the Word of God, to, to see what the text says, to interpret it in its context, which is what you say, you know, we talk about context rules interpretation, and then to live it out, to apply it. And so I would just encourage you, if those of you who are listening to this, really have a heart to engage with the Bible more deeply and to understand um, understand it, then, then connect with us. Uh, we run all sorts of training and got some fantastic resources for, for doing that. I, I so um, align with what you're saying because I've been in that place myself where I've gone along and listened to the listened to the sermon and I thought, well, you know what? And then, and then you hear somebody say, well, if you want to know God for yourself, you've got to study the word for yourself. And I thought, well, I don't know how to do that. I don't actually know how to do that. And then it was through that that we came across this ministry, which has then taught me how to do it. And I have a heart, and obviously your heart is similar, to, to really help people to engage meaningfully in the scripture and to hear God speaking to us. So, um, yeah, I just totally agree with what you're saying there. And I think there are a lot of people who say, well, I can't do this, it's too difficult, but but This is discipleship. Yes. You know, Amen. there Amen. are people out there that haven't got a Bible but they are still trying to understand the scriptures. Um, there are people who can't read in many countries, but they're still trying to understand the scriptures. You've been given a free education. You've been taught to read by state-funded education on the taxpayer, and you've got a Bible. You know, why are you not reading it? Yeah, amen. Amen to that. Now, do you have a, would you have a favorite Bible character um, or, or book of the Bible? I think it's not so much that you have a favourite that's kind of like a favourite teddy bear or something, but it's more like there are characters that you kind of identify with, particularly. Um, one character I particularly identify with at the moment is Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah is in exile in Babylon. The nation, God's people, it has been destroyed because of sin, and that has 
brought down the walls of Jerusalem, literally, as well as spiritually. All yep. sorts of stuff's come in. Yep. And Nehemiah's heart and his calling is to go back and to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And, you know, part of my heart and my passion is the heritage of the UK. Um, you know, the book I've just written, yeah, it, it's talking about, uh, it's called Good for Society, and it's calling the Conservative Party back to its original Christian principles. Um, I don't have a problem if you're a Labour person or an SNP person. I was talking to John Mason, who's Glasgow SNP. Um, we had a great chat for 40 minutes yesterday here. And that He's in that party, I'm in a different party, but we're both so committed to you know, it's working the gospel out. We might work it out in different ways, but what is so important is you understand how much of this country's institutions, not just its law, its attitude to social justice, even our approach to the environment, even our approach to defence, has been informed by Christian values which have then been working worked out over many, many generations. And, you know, I mean, Go to the average village in the UK, and what do you find there? You will find a cross, and you will find people's names on it. Why are people's names, who have died in battle defending their country, commemorated on a cross? Well, it's because we believe that man is made in the image of God, and that actually, when you give up your life for other people, whether it's as a soldier defending your country from invasion or a lifeboat man, you are reflecting something of the image of God, who is the saviour who came down to earth and gave up his life for us. And there are so many echoes like that, where we have worked things out in our culture and in our history, and actually they have become part of our civilization, but they are now being forgotten and eroded. And actually, you can only keep that civilization together if you feed its roots. Winston Churchill, he wasn't even really a Christian, as far as we know. He possibly got led to the Lord by his nanny, who was an evangelical Christian. He certainly never went to church on a regular basis, but that lady prayed for him, and she taught him to pray. And just before World War II, he wrote his history of the English-speaking peoples, volume one, and he talked about Alfred the Great establishing Christian England. And what he meant by that was the outworking of Christian principles in our institutions. And then during World War II, he said, this is a battle between Nazism and for the future of Christian civilization. Now, whether or not he actually ended up with that personal relationship, he got that right, because civilization is based on the outworking of Christian principles. Um, and we have to recover that these days. And that means, actually, Christians have to get back to the Bible, and they have to work that out in everyday society and be salt and light. Amen. So, Nehemiah, so... so the yeah, that's a long way round to say, Nehemiah kind of did that stuff, yeah. only he did it, what, 1,500 years ago, and we need to do it today. Uh, that, is, that is fantastic. That really is fantastic. Um, well, it was 
two and a half thousand years ago, I think he did it. But um, yeah, it was. It was two and, two and a half thousand, thousand years, years ago. <laughs> Thank yeah, you. No, and and near, you mentioned Nehemiah there, and um, you know, Nehemiah is one of my heroes in the Bible as well, uh, because uh, and actually it lines with some of what you've been saying here. You you've clearly got a heart for Christians that are persecuted. You've got a heart for Christians that are living in difficult time. Uh, and actually, in Nehemiah chapter 1, you know, his brother Hananiah comes to him and he, he asks him a question. Hey, how are my brothers doing? How, how's it going back in Jerusalem? You know, he just asks the question, how, how are you going? And then he's told, you know, the people are living in reproach, the walls are broken down, it's terrible, it's terrible. And, and from Nehemiah's response to that, he's just cut to the quick, he's cut to the heart. And he says, oh my goodness me, and he pours out that lovely... Um, prayer in chapter one and as a result of that clearly he's seeking the Lord about what he should do and then four months later uh, the Lord gives him that opportunity to go back so um, and that's a really interesting story because he prays he is a, in effect a senior career civil servant yes and the king yeah opens the door for a sideways move yeah. for him effectively to become governor of he that does. province he does doesn't he he does and um you can, you may be able to pick up some of the passion that I have for this person, Nehemiah and, and Martin too. And um, and uh, we are, um, you may know those of you listening. We set up a Bible school. Precept Ministry set up a Bible school. Uh, we're just setting up in Scotland, but um, we've been running it since the start of this year, 2018, in England. And uh, I'm inviting you to come on our third course in November, the 16th to the 19th of November, where we're going to be looking in depth at this uh, book of Nehemiah and how one person, God can call one person to change a nation. And you know, often we think, oh my goodness me, how on earth can one person change a nation? But one person on fire for God, doing what God's called them to do, actually can do that. And uh, so we're gonna look at the, the book of Nehemiah. So, um, have you got a favorite Bible verse? I haven't actually. Haven't you? But as I said, you know, <laughs> what, I, what I try and do is to read through the whole Bible. Yeah. Um, regularly, I've no idea how many times I've done it now. Yeah. Um, but all of it, all is, of it, all of it is profitable. <laughs> yeah, you know, put it into context. Yeah. You know, don't take bits out of context and say we've got to introduce an Old Testament law that says, you know, we're going to do whatever to people who boil a goat in its mother's milk or something. Put it into context. But all of it is profitable. Yeah. And think about how do I apply this today? What's an appropriate way to apply it today? Yeah. Two Timothy three sixteen seventeen. All Scripture is inspired and by, by God, God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Absolutely. That the man or woman of God may be fully equipped for every good work. Martin, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. We've only just recently met, but clearly you, you, you know, the Lord's had you overseas, uh, involved in some quite difficult situations. He's got you back here in the UK now, uh, involved in politics, writing, highlighting issues that um, Christians are having to deal with. So God bless you. God Thank bless you. the work of uh, the Barnabas Fund. And you know, um, I just share your heart with what you've been talking about the Word of God. And uh, for those of you listening, you know, please do engage, engage with the Word of God, because that's going to start transforming our minds. And as our minds are transformed, then that's going to affect what we do, what we say, and what the, what the Lord has planned for us. So thank you so much. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. You've been listening to the Bible and Me podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to subscribe and leave a rating or review. If you want to find out more about Precept Ministries UK, visit www.precept.org.
precept.org.uk. Thank you.